Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Uh, today we have uh, Dan Hill, product lead at Airbnb, and SeedCamp alumni from the company known as Crash Patter. Um, it's great to be able to, to, to chat with him here in San Francisco because he's one of those case studies of uh, a group of founders that have gone from a startup in Europe, acquired by a U.S. company, and then stayed in the U.S. building out the company's product. So we want to explore that in today's podcast. Um, Dan, let's start off with your background. I know that you're a musician as well as you are uh, an amazing tech lead. Uh, so maybe we can start like how that, the synthesis of those two things. Yeah, thanks. So um, so I grew up, actually, my, my dad is uh, a scientist. He works for an oil exploration company. And my, my mom is a classical pianist. So I grew up from a young age, um, both playing the violin and the piano, and also you know, dismantling computers and sort of learning to, learning to program. Um, and when I was about 19, I was looking at university. Um, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a violinist. Like, that, was my, that was my life calling. Um, so I went to university and studied violin and music. Um, but um, throughout the whole of my university career, um, I was still making websites. I was playing with programming. I was doing little projects for people, getting involved in like, student stuff around you know, technology. Um, and so for the first couple of years after university, um, I kind of pursue. I sort of pursued my sort of music goal, my music ambitions, um, but kind of funded by um, building technology and, and web products for people. Um, as it happened, just over those few years, the web and technology piece got more and more interesting and took more and more of my time, sort of subconsciously. And the violin gradually just. I sort of woke up one day and realized I hadn't really been focused too much on it. And I really kind of realized, actually, yeah, my passion here is um, I really want to sort of spend my life working on technology and product um, and violin and music being a kind of, um, you know, thing that you have as a hobby or something you love in the in the, in the background. Mm. And you still do that because I, I know you perform still, don't you? Yeah. Um, so there was probably a period of about a year or two during Crash Powder when I didn't actually play at all. Um, but since being out here in the U.S., um, uh, it's been great. I've had you know chances to actually have been playing a lot more. Um, actually, a friend is getting married in a couple of weeks. I'm playing at her wedding. Um, so, Can you play at my wedding? Uh, I'm not getting married. <laughs> Depends where. Do. Destination wedding. Destination sure, wedding. I'll be there. All right, awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. So, so why did you start Crash Powder then? I mean, with Stephen, what what was the genesis of that? Yeah. So, um, as I kind of started doing less um, less music. Um, I started a little company called Serene Studios, um, which was kind of me basically taking the kind of um, one-off projects I was doing for people into more of like a, let's build this out into a sort of uh, more of a little team and a company and actually be more of a consultancy. Um, so that was really exciting. It was my first chance at actually like, you know, finding people, bringing them into a team, kind of building larger projects, managing clients and that kind of thing. Um, and that was really, really exciting. But I kind of had this sort of interest in like something a bit more consumer scaling you know owning something uh, it's a real killer when you you spend six months building this thing for a for a for a client and then they take it and a week later they've destroyed everything about it and yeah. so um i was kind of had in my back of my mind that i was like interested in, in this kind of like startup space in 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 these types of companies and i met steven actually through a friend um he'd also been thinking about um uh, starting starting a new company, he'd started a couple previously. Um, he'd actually been at the uh, Sydney Olympics, I think in must have been what 2004. I think mm -hmm. they took place, um, and had the kind of experience. You know, he was working at a bar. Um, there was nowhere to stay. Hotels were full. Um, so one of the, his sort of bar, you know, people working at the bar with him says like, "Great, won't you come stay at our place? Stay on my sofa. Um, you know, how about you charge you twenty bucks a night?" Um, and 
I think for Stephen, this kind of launched the idea, wait, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's maybe this is something we could think more about. And so we fast forward a couple of years. Um, Stephen gets laid off in the recession. Um, I'm kind of thinking about starting something new. And through a sort of mutual connection friend, we, we, got, we got talking. And the idea of Crash Pad, um sort of came about. And we thought, actually... But where, where, when that idea came about, how where was Airbnb in, in the sort of the creation? Because, I mean, you, yep. it was already existing by the time you well, materialized it. Barely, yeah. Airbnb was probably, as a company, about... Not 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 actually that old. Uh, the domain name is only registered six days before CrashPartner.com is registered. So at that point, um, we didn't actually really know of Airbnb. Now, sure, within the first six months of us starting the company, of course, Airbnb was making more noise and launching their product. We were launching ours, and we got to know of each other. But but at the outset, we'd never actually really had much exposure or really heard of Airbnb. Mm. Um, and so for the initial sort of six twelve months. Um, we were kind of both in similar positions, um, you know, both finding it difficult to raise money. Um, uh, during that period is when um, Airbnb joined uh, Y Combinator, but um, in the pre-Y Combinator days when they were just starting out too, we both mm. were sort of, um, it, it, you know, we were both trying to figure out how to make this model work and, and um, how to raise money and how to, how to make it successful. Mm. What, you know, that's probably a good uh, point to explore, which is around uh, competitor discussions. Mm. What would you recommend founders that are in the state of identifying early competitors, which could end up being like an Airbnb? What should be the angle by which to approach those CEOs? What should an outcome be, if at all, any? So I think um, the framework I have in my mind is when I see companies really worrying about their competition, um, and one of the reasons actually Airbnb really succeeded um, is it is it didn't really look at the competition. Um, even when things like you know Wimdu and the Salmon Brothers came along, um, it wasn't really about um, how do we beat them. Because if you look at the total addressable market, nobody has more. Even Airbnb today has only a few percent of the total addressable market, mm. right? And so I think it's important to keep in mind, it's, it's easy to get sucked into a bubble where you look at the competition as the total addressable market, where mm -hmm. really the total addressable market is what's out in front of you. Mm. And so the question is, I think, um, it's not so much about how much money other companies have raised um, as more have they f how much further are they ahead in their learning? Like if they've figured out how to take $1, and turn that into more users than you can, then yeah, then it comes down to how much money they've raised. But if, if neither of you have really figured it out, if the model is still early, mm. um, you're far better off, I think, focusing your energy and time looking at how you can grow your business mm. and how you can just capture the market. Now, it's, it's a different conversation, of course, if there's a pretty, a pretty well-funded incumbent. Um, Typically, companies get to a size, you know, in, in the sort of typical arc, they get to a size where they start to innovate slowly, and that's when tech comes and disrupts them. But the hard thing is when there's a company, you know, that's reasonably well-funded that is disrupting itself, um, that is, you know, innovating too. And, and now the question is, like, do you think, have you figured out some learning that they can't, mm. that they won't catch on to or figure out, that you can really grow and, and, go and accelerate? And do you think it's worth chatting with them at all? I mean, was, yeah, were I those mean, conversations, early conversations between you and Airbnb productive in any way or useful, or should you just avoid it, kind of a distraction? Yeah, I think, I mean, particularly in... In, in, in California, in San Francisco, but I think in most parts of the world now, um, this way of doing business, you know, where you keep things close to your chest, where um, you see your competitors as sort of enemies, it yeah. is, is very much gone. Like, yeah. the ideas are out there. Like, information is on the internet. Yeah. The, the, it's unlikely that you've 
thought of some profound new idea that's never been thought of before. Mm. Um, the trick really is like in how you execute on that idea and have you figured mm. out a way to do it more efficiently? Have you figured out a way to, um, you know, your value proposition better resonates with other people? But in terms of like the core ideas, I don't think it's, you know, there's, there's much secret left, you know, much value left in, in having secrets. And so actually reaching out to com competitors, I mean, um, not sharing your secret source, but being able to share challenges you both see seems to be, you know, kind of a win-win situation. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, reaching out to Airbnb in the early days, um, we met Brian and Joe in London in 2009, I think. Um, we both had our own challenges. We were both going after the bigger market. And so really it was a kind of just a friendly, like, hey, good to know that these are real people too. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to make this thing work. Yeah. And so maybe if you can share any level of detail, walk us through what that acquisition process looked like everything that you can share from whether or not there was an acquisition uh, negotiation, whether or not you know you had to move and keep both of the team members together in the move and mm. all, all any detail you can and what you can't then you know too bad for us. Yeah. Um, so we kind of hit this point in Crash Powder where um, uh, we, we've been with Seacamp for about a year. Um, Airbnb at that point had just raised the $110 million round a little couple of months previously. And so it kind of got us thinking. Um, at, at that point, too, we, we were starting to look at another round and, and, and sort of scaling, too. And so we were, of course, having these conversations about, you know, if we raise this money, how do we scale? Which geographies would we go into? Is it a different vertical? Like, how does this business really scale from this good idea to something, um, you know, much bigger? Um, and, of course, the question at that point is, like, well, actually, Airbnb is, is really investing heavily in a lot of geographic expansion, too. Um, you know, how do we see ourselves differentiating? Do we see ourselves really competing in the long term with this kind of um, investment? And... Um, and so at that time, we had things like um, the Olympics coming up in London. So, and, and we were the sort of dominant player in, in, the, in the UK market. And so um, that was an advantage that we knew wouldn't last forever. There's sort of a window of opportunity there. Um, a couple of other players in the space had, had sort of been reaching out to us, interested in a similar deal. Um, and so it got us thinking, well, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something here worth exploring. Um, so we, we reached out to Brian and, and started the conversation. Um, they were really interested. It fit really nicely with their expansion into Europe um, and, and um, wanting to, you know, uh, take on more hosts and, and get more inventory. So um, there was a kind of a natural synergy that it seemed to make sense. Um, what's great about Airbnb, um, the company has such great um, great culture and a great approach to doing business and, and growth that it's not really in the business of, like, destroying competitors. It's in the business of, like, we want to create a world where everyone can travel and belong on Airbnb. Um, and so the deal itself was actually pretty um, pretty easy to negotiate. Um, Airbnb was very reasonable, you know, and the deal the deal kind of came together. Um, and so the first part of that was really, you know, how do we get all of our hosts um, and guests from Crash Powder into Airbnb? And that took a few months. Um, and after that, um, I was just really excited by the type of team Airbnb was building, um, the way they were approaching technology and the opportunity to come to San Francisco and learn and be here for a few years. Um, Stephen, I think, was really excited about starting something new again um, and, and sort of uh, building a base in London. And so, um, yeah, we, we each made our decisions. I wanted to be out here working on, on scaling this team. And, and I think Stephen was really excited about being, being in London and being part of that tech startup scene again in London. So... I asked you earlier um, around the size of Airbnb when you joined, and one of the things that you said that 
you've learned over the last years have, has been this this process of scaling a team. Yeah. So you came in, there were 70, you said? 70 people, yeah. 70, and now how many are there? Um, just over 1,500, I think. So, I mean, that's a huge yeah. scaling process. And maybe you can walk through us the, the process of, of hiring people, of, of inspiring them, of managing that, yeah. th that number of people in, in a, such a highly innovative company. Yeah, so um, I guess it all begins with, with hiring. And um, hiring is, it's so easy when you're, you have so much to do and you desperately need people, um, engineers, designers, product people, business people, whatever it might be to come in. Um, but actually, the, so much actually rests on that decision of who you hire. Um, particularly for something like a product manager, which is a very leveraged position. You know, you only have one product manager working on a problem. You might have 10 engineers, so if one engineer doesn't work out, okay, fine, but that, that product manager is a really crucial person to get right. And so we put a lot of time and effort into thinking how we hire the best people. And so we actually have a component, which is obviously the technical interview, you know, um, can they code well, do they have good product sense, design sense, and so on, and then actually a kind of what we call a core values piece. Like, um, what we really try and figure out is this the kind of person that's going to fit with our culture. And um, actually, one of the things we've done we've done well is actually sort of institutionalize or build a process by which we actually find people who are going to fit into the way we see the world and we think about problems. Um, and that was one of the key ways we can scale quickly um, is being able to distribute that type of um, process. So it used to be that the founders interviewed everybody yeah. in order to keep the culture right. And actually, one of the things we've done is find a way for the way the things they care about to be you know, scaled and distributed around the world. Mm -hmm. um, keeping people inspired um, is actually really... Um, it changes and it's kind of interesting. So when you're first starting a company, it's, it's not actually that hard necessarily to inspire people or, or kind of have a vision. The world is in front of you. You're just starting out. It's exciting. There's, there's the adrenaline of building something from scratch. Um, what changes though over time is that Airbnb's mission hasn't necessarily, or vision hasn't changed. You know, we don't change the vision every six months. Like we're still aiming on the same goal. And so it's more about how do you keep people engaged for the long term, for three years, five years, 10 years, and keep them thinking about that direction. Um, so a lot of the work uh, we try and do is obviously to um, have the very, the great sort of North Star vision, but really then also kind of build that back into what is our vision for this year? What is the vision for this product for the next six months or the year? Um, to get people excited, not only about the long term, which can seem you know, daunting, but I actually keep them feeling that energy and that entrepreneurship like day to day. Yeah, and moving from sort of hiring and inspiring now to managing, mm. you've got how many people kind of underneath uh, you right now? 12 underneath me directly. So, you know, you obviously started and those 12 probably have several underneath them. Mm -hmm. So how how have you progressed as a manager? Because, you, you know, you were a co-founder of a company of two. Yeah. Um, to now managing a huge, impactful company globally. Yep. How has that changed? I mean, books you read, just making mm. mistakes? I <laughs> yeah. mean, like uh, the, the primer for, for a founder listening to this. Yeah. Um, so I think a, f a few thoughts. Um, generally, nobody's ever ready for management when they first do it. Mm -hmm. um, so at some point, you have to just trust people to go manage and they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely comes down to having people um, 
we, a lot, one of the things we really look for, particularly in managers, is a growth mindset. People who are willing to learn rather than you know growers, not knowers. People who are willing to learn and adapt and be humble. Um, I think that's a really key piece of management. It's easy. The hard thing when you're a CEO of a company, you know, you have VCs saying no to you all the time. Your product's not working. People want their money. Like it's like it's, it can be a very stressful situation. And I guess what's changed at Airbnb is you know now um, really it's more about how do I bring more you know brought more openness and humanity and how do I actually inspire and motivate a team who are from a very wide variety of backgrounds, interests, life stages, and like kind of bring some of that um, humanity to it. Um, uh, books I've read um, or, or, or like kind of good places to go, go learn more. Um, there's a really great book by um, the founder of Pixar um, called Creativity Inc, mm-hmm. which is about how you manage creativity. And uh, what he talks a lot about is how they built a culture and how they managed people at Pixar in, in a highly stressful, creative space, but in a way that still, you know, for 13 years, they've never had not once, they've never, they've never had a failed movie. Like every movie has been successful. Mm-hmm. And so how they kind of did that. And that's, that's inspired a lot of stuff we do here. They have, um, he has a of a brain trust, which is sort of a group of people that you can get into a safe room with, a safe space and like just share your ideas and they will give you their honest feedback and like critique it and help you figure it out. Um, Cause everyone's goal is to get to the best, the best outcome. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff, um, We've we've done. Um, I've learned as we've gone over the last few years. Um, there's only so much, which is kind of around more like change management, I mm-hmm. guess you'd call it. Which is how people. There's certain things people like to be steady and, and constant, and things that people like to you know, be, be nimble about. Um, so generally, when we think about like managing a large team, the vision really doesn't need shouldn't be changing very often. The vision should be set, and everyone should know that vision and kind of see that direction mm-hmm. and then goals are something you would then set potentially monthly or quarterly um, and again they really shouldn't change too much during that period and then a, a roadmap is something you can keep very nimble um, and that's the kind of thing that you know matter whether you're an engineer working on this team or on that team everyone needs to feel that connection up to the vision and kind of know where the goals are the next milestones even if day-to-day they're changing their roadmaps um, the project's not working they're pivoting this way and that um, one of the one of the good ways to keep a larger team sort of focused is, is not to be continually changing the vision and the goals too much, um, mm. but keep the roadmap nimble. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned earlier something about, uh, not just about managing a growing team, but also managing one that's cross-functional. Yeah. Do you want to sort of explore that further? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, probably many startups when you begin, you're, you're looking for technical talent, engineers, designers, product people, um, really trying to figure out how to, how to build that product, um, get, get sort of product market fit. Um, but as you scale a company, um, you start having a lot of things like proper customer service, uh, operations, you have actual brand marketing. Um, and these types of functions that at an early startup, you probably aren't necessarily hiring a lot of. Mm. Um, and one of the really interesting things I've, I've been sort of uh, doing a lot of um, the last few years is like, is, is how to, you know, I think very much like a, uh, an engineer, you know, um, problems have hypotheses, you experiment, you test and learn. Um, but it's been fascinating figuring out how do you actually lead initiatives and work on initiatives that also involve brand marketing and people from a very creative um, advertising background and how do they see your product and how do you work with them? Or how do you scale operations globally around the world? Um, and so that, that's been a lot of um, like sort of um, you almost see it as like customer development inside your own building, which is like, I'm actually just going to learn how this person thinks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to understand how they approach the world mm-hmm. and then figure out how we can 
both see the world the same way. Um, it can be hard as a company scales that you have different people who think differently, um, not quite sure quite how to work together. Mm. And so it's really important, I think, to be able to just sort of take a step back and kind of figure out how this person thinks. And, and then with that, you can figure out how to work together successfully. Right, right. And that, get only, that only gets worse when you start thinking international. Because yep. I know that you've started launching international and the consequence of that is time zones, uh, hiring procedures, quality levels, and all that. Maybe you can share how, how that's managed. Yeah, so um, yeah, having international remote teams is, is, is difficult. Um, some of the key things are not to make them feel like remote teams, but they are the owners of their region. Um, you know, our team in Asia knows infinitely more about Asia than our team in San Francisco does. Mm. So they're not really a satellite office, they are Asia, Airbnb. Um, and so um, the challenges, of course, are things like time zones. I mean, the practical challenge is like, how do you actually get meetings? How do you get video conferencing to work? Um, still a massive unsolved problem if anyone wants to go figure out video conferencing. <laughs> um, but um, how do you work out those kind of things? Yeah. And then a lot of it's, um, a lot of the stuff that influences product particularly is like, how do you understand local cultural um, sort of uh, idiosyncrasies and, and, and work with them into the product? Um, one of the things we do a lot of is actually send the product teams out into the world yeah. to actually experience what it's like to um, be in Singapore and use mm -hmm. our mobile app. Um, it's always a it's always a challenge, particularly for a travel company like Airbnb, for a you know, hospitality brand that um, we build as as though we're on a fast Wi-Fi network in San Francisco and we're surrounded mm -hmm. by coffee shops. And actually, that's not where most of our users are. And so. Um, for product, the interesting challenge is how do you how do you keep how do you build a global product first rather than a U.S. product first? Yeah, it's funny. I think I saw a, um, sort of one of those DVD uh, explanations of how some of the Pixar movies were made, yep. and it involved the artists flying to the location. So for Up, they sent them to Brazil to to the forest to see what it was like. Yep. So in in some ways, yes, very very much. Yeah, it's, philosophy. It's, it's really similar. Actually, in the book. Um, and I think his name is Ed something, who the founder of Pixar, who, who wrote this book about creativity, that was one of their big things, was like, get the team to go actually experience um, what we would call, I guess, the user's problem or the pain point or the opportunity. But for them is like, if they're making a movie about Ratatouille, about chefs, um, have them chef. go work in a kitchen like for a month and actually understand what it's like so that they bring that. And you, it's really hard to measure, mm. um, but you start to see it kind of come through in the details. There's no one thing that suddenly is like, oh, now it's now it's local, but it just starts to seep into the product and, and, and that's when you really start to build a native product. Yeah, no, fair point. So we were talking about international expansion. Now let's bring it back to bringing it international coming to the Valley. What are the top three tips you'd give to founders who are either in a situation where they're moving here already mm -hmm. or know that at some point they're going to have to move here and that therefore there's a series of question marks and what should they do and what are the, what are the best advices on where I should live and all that stuff. But just in general, top three tips for founders uh, moving to the Valley for whatever reason. Um, I think the first um, is definitely live in the city to begin with. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, that's a practical thing, but really what I mean is like, um, actually experience San Francisco, like meet other founders here. Generally, everyone here is very open and very hospitable. So like, mm -hmm. I would definitely spend a lot of time just getting out and actually meeting people and being mm -hmm. becoming part of the part of the culture um, and the scene in San Francisco. Um, I think the second actually I, I would say is um, actually sort of hold on to your own 
um, your own beliefs, your own confidence, your own ideas. Um, it's a city that's full of people starting companies. Everybody is starting a company. Um, but to be honest, that doesn't mean everybody's starting a good company. And so if you're successful in Europe and you're moving to San Francisco, it can maybe seem daunting that like everyone is getting funded, everyone's starting companies. I think it's important to kind of keep keep grounded about it and actually you know, there's a lot of companies here that fail. I mean, we see the successes in in all the companies around here, but actually, there's a lot of a lot of failure too. So, I would say don't don't get too overwhelmed by the amount of people starting companies. Um, what would my third tip be? I guess my third tip would be um, spend time. This is more personal now, I guess. Like, mm. don't get too sucked into the tech bubble in in San Francisco. It's mm. easy to become consumed by it, mm-hmm. and there's actually a really interesting, rich world outside of it. And actually, some of the things I've learned most have been not through people working in technology in San Francisco, but actually all the other all the other industry that's happening in the valley. Hmm. Cool. So we always end with a, an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug anything you'd like to plug. Hopefully, something that maybe is a passion of yours, maybe a concert or a charity or... Yeah, so this one I, I thought about a little bit um, as you brought up earlier, Carlos, and it's actually, it might seem a slightly weird uh, thing to plug. It's not really a specific charity or an event as such. It's um, it's really encouraging people, um, which kind of comes from my music, I guess, which mm-hmm. is really encouraging people to think outside technology. Um, it's so easy, and I see it so much in the city, that people become consumed in the tech world. And actually, most of the world's problems that need solving, most of the things that actually will make either great businesses or actually change the world and be really, really meaningful, happen outside of the technology sphere. And so I guess I would just, I would really hope, encourage as many people as possible to just like read outside technology, meet people outside technology, and be open to um, all the things that happen outside of our startup and technology world. That's excellent. Great advice. Thanks again, Dan. No, thank you. It's and a pleasure. Uh, see you hopefully in London sometime soon. Hopefully soon. (laughs) All right. Later, guys. Bye.